That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way, Dakota Brasheli is going to be on the program. Dakota is participating with a group of witches in a hex on Brett Kavanaugh. This is going to be interesting. Fox News and Tucker Carlson are going insane. Pat Robertson is a great Christian and religious leader is saying, you know, hey, we can't hold Mohammed bin Salman to account for murdering an American resident because uh, we would risk $100 billion with arms sales. Ted Lieu uh, retweets that and says, dear Pat Robertson, remember when Jesus said it's okay to deal with murderers as long as you can make a profit? Oh yeah, me neither. Right, Ted Lieu, good on you. That is a, a, a very good one. Professor Juan Cole will be with us, the uh, professor of history at the University of Michigan. And we're going to be talking about what's going on with Khashoggi and Trump in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and we may also be talking about what's going on on our southern border with this uh, uh, caravan on its way. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a, a lot in the news as well today. Uh, Khashoggi's last piece was just published today by The Washington Post, Jamal Khashoggi's piece. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and he, he talks about how, he says, I was recently online looking at the 2018 Freedom of the World Report published by Freedom House and came to a grave realization there's only one country in the Arab world that has been classified as free. That nation is Tunisia. Jordan, Morocco, and Kuwait come second with a classification of partly free. The rest of the countries in the Arab world are classified as not free. And then he goes on to talk about how in most of these Arab countries, they only get state-run media. Poverty is widespread because the royal families are basically siphoning all the money to the top. And the one country that actually is promoting a free press, Oman, with Al Jazeera, which is based there, is under attack, basically. And at the very end of the article, he says, the Arab world needs a modern version of the old transna transnational media. He, prior to that, he'd been talking about the uh, joint project between the Washington Post and New York Times, the International Tribu Herald Tribune, which is no longer published bought by, I believe, the Washington Post. It was bought by one of them, and then they just shut it down. He's like, you know, we need this. We need this kind of stuff, and we need it in Arabic. He said, the Arab world needs a modern version of the old transnational media so citizens can be informed about global events. And more important, we need to provide a platform for Arab voices. We suffer from poverty, mismanagement, and poor education. Through the creation of an independent international forum, isolated from the influence of nationalist governments spreading hate through propaganda, Ordinary people in the Arab world would be able to address the structural problems their societies face. This apparently is the op-ed that got this man murdered by apparently the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And it's getting very, very strange. The latest story about, you know, because everybody's assuming that uh, they're going to find a fall guy. It may be that they just found their fall guy. Now, I can't confirm this. This is a report coming out of uh, Turkey. Turkish newspaper. One of the guys who was apparently part of this 15-person hit team who came into Turkey to murder Mr. Khashoggi, it is alleged, Mashal Saad al-Bastani, a 31-year-old lieutenant in the Saudi Royal Air Forces, just died in a, quote, suspicious car accident, end quote, in Riyadh. 
And there are some wondering if this guy is going to be the one to take the fall since he's already dead. And really, was he just killed? Khashoggi's last op-ed was published today by the Washington Post. In it, he's calling for press freedom in the Arab world. <laughs> we can't have that. We've got to murder this guy. Seriously. This is, this is what's going on. And we've aligned ourselves with this regime for a century or nearly a century. And the fruit of that has been 9-11, 15 Saudi hijackers, the rise of al-Qaeda, run by, inspired by Wahhabist philosophies, which are promoted by Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk about that. And voter suppression. Obviously, the number one strategy that the Republicans are rolling out is we're just a little more than 20, 20 days out from the election. When all you've got to sell is fear and loathing, most people are like, really? You want to take away my health care? You want to let the health insurance companies screw me on pre-existing conditions? You want to give a trillion dollars to the billionaires? You want to, you want to unleash the banksters? You want to reduce the, the regulations that stop the pollution from poisoning my children? And you want me to vote for you? No, of course I'm not going to vote for you. Well, you can't vote then. And the guy who really knows all about this is Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker. His uh, latest piece, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, you can find it over at Amazon and other places. Greg Pallast, P-A-L-A-S-T dot com is his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Pallas, just like I'm Tom underscore Hartman. And uh, Greg, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you, Tom. You've put up Nevada. First of all, you've been getting these voter suppression lists from all over the country. You broke open the story on Georgia that's now being picked up by other media. Somehow they forget that you were the, the guy. Um, right. uh, you know, unfortunately, well, sometimes you get acknowledged, but I, I really... Yeah, there's more coming up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what happened is I sued 26 states who are running mass purge programs, most of them um, GOP states. And I want to tell you, as the Brennan Center reported, there were millions and millions, like 14 million people purged last year uh, from the voter rolls without notice. You don't know it if you're going to show up November 6th. You may not know. Wait a minute, Greg, 14 yeah. million? I mean, there's only like 140 million voters in the United States, aren't there? Boy, you sound like one of those whining liberals. You say 10% uh, yeah, of the entire voting electorate of the United States was purged last year by Republicans? <laughs> 10 yeah, friggin' percent? And so what I did was I did uh, I uh, got a terrific lawyer, uh, Jeannie Meyer from New York, and and a lot of great local voting rights lawyers uh, throughout the nation, to to basically file uh, notices of federal lawsuit against all these states that they didn't unless they coughed up their purge list, which most uh, on the 89th day did, um, including Georgia, Nevada, Illinois, Indiana, um, and more coming Arizona. Uh, Utah, we're, we're going to have about uh, two dozen up, or a dozen at least, before the election. Here's the thing. If you're listening in Nevada, this is your last day to register to vote. Please go to gregpalace.com. I have 90,000 names of those who've been purged from the voter rolls of Nevada from Vegas and Reno. Um, those are the only ones that we could practically get up in time for today's last day of registration. I know you think you've been voting for 20 years, same place. Well, guess what? You didn't get a letter. You didn't get a note. You've been purged. Go take a look, especially if you have a common name like Rodriguez or, or Garcia. Um, Indiana, we found out, guess what? Uh, and the state has admitted to me that, oops, after they gave us a list and we, and we checked it against what's called the cross-check list, Chris Kobach's little nasty purge list, it's the you know racially poisonous, phony list of people who've moved out of their state. Uh, in Indiana, 20, 28,000 people were removed from the cross-check list. 20,000 of those, we can guarantee you, are still at home in Indiana. Uh, they've lost their votes, and the state is now admitting to us, the co-counsel for the state elections board told me, told our, our lawyers, Looks like we violated a federal court order. Can you believe that? They literally violated wow. a federal court order. Are they going to reverse their decision and put those people back on the voting rolls? You're kidding me, right, Tom? Oh, you yeah, got I'm our, sorry. You know, so we, you know, this is Republicans follow the law? I'm sorry. I, if, yeah. Excuse me, Greg. I had a moment of, you know, uh, insanity. Uh, yeah, you had a moment of justice, right, yeah. uh, in your head. Um, 
It's, uh, but on the other hand, Indiana says that if you come in, if you're one of the 20,000 people illegally purged in violation of a federal court order, go in, bring your ID, please bring an uh, ID with your, uh, with your registration address on it, like a utility bill, something like that, plus a photo ID, and they claim that they'll give you a regular ballot, not even a provisional ballot. So let's test, uh, let's test it. So we mm-hmm. may get some justice here from this investigation. Mm-hmm. And uh, more states coming up. But here's the big news for you, Tom. I want to be, you to be the first to know, and a, and a couple million of your, of your best friends listening. Um, tomorrow morning, I am uh, serving a federal lawsuit on Brian Kemp, Secretary of State of Georgia, who is running against Stacey Abrams for governor. And uh, as you know, he has refused. Uh, he's the first Secretary of State running for governor in Georgia, it often happens, who won't resign from office because he's in charge of the vote to get rid of the conflict of interest. Well, guess what, sir? You're going to be spending the rest of the campaign in a federal courtroom because um, you, have, um, you have violated our demand and notice. He's hidden material from us. While he did give us the list of purge voters, uh, he, left out, uh, he left out cute things like voters' middle names. It's okay, we've got all those voters up online, um, but please, um, you know, make sure that, that you get out the vote, bring all your ID. It's going to be a fight over whether these ready. Um, we have 340,000 voters we know are wrongly removed from the voter rolls. Wrongly removed from the voter rolls. That's Just that's in Georgia. Word. I'm going to give you that, that. I will release that evidence and how we know that tomorrow. Wow. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this, when we file the suit, um, and uh, at uh, 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, we'll be releasing all the data and all the names of the legal voters. This is one of the biggest vote heists in broad daylight in American history. Brian Kemp running for governor and removing, uh, he's removed over half a million voters from the Georgia voter rolls in a single year. No one, no one has been given a notice that they have lost their vote. So please check if you've been purged by going to gregpalace.com. And that's in all these states, Indiana, Nevada, Illinois, Georgia. We'll have more states up. Just go to the site, keep as we put more up. And you just put in your first name, last name, and zip code. You'll find out if you've been removed from the voter rolls. Then you can take what action you can. Nevada, re-register. Illinois has a week to re-register. And tomorrow um, we'll be serving Mr. Kemp, and he can explain why he's removing legal voters from the voter rolls of Georgia. Absolutely amazing stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. What, what, uh, what, you know, if, if, if you, if you show up at the polling place in any of these Republican controlled states where 14 million people have been purged from the voting rolls in how, 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 over what period of time, Greg? Over, uh, since the last year. In just the last year, 14 million. In 2017. Yeah, in just the last year, 14 million Americans have been removed from the voting rolls in these 26 Republican-controlled states. And uh, so if you show up and they say, you know, I don't have your name on the list, what do you do? Okay, two things. Um, Get firm. Say, I am a voter. Uh, I want an election judge. Here's my uh, ID. Again, bring ID and bring something with your uh, registration address on it if it doesn't match. And if you have a voter registration card, be sure to bring that. Yes, bring that to bring every piece of paper and your mother to verify that you are who you are and you vote where you vote and you've always been voting. Demand a regular ballot, not a provisional ballot. If you can't win that fight, because I don't want you to get violent or get arrested, uh, fill out a provisional ballot. Uh, there's a good chance it won't be counted, but, uh, you know, this is going to be a fight to get those va- ballots counted. But one yeah. thing you can do to lose your vote uh, is not fill it out properly. If it asks for your driver's license number, and most do, um, and you don't have a driver's license, put no driver's license. Leave it blank, you lose your vote. Fill out your name on it and sign it exactly as you did on your voter registration form. If you use the middle initial, make sure you, you use the middle initial. Um, do not... Uh, do anything that changes your name or signature. I know this is like, this is this like is so uh, weird, so crazy. You know, like jumping through little hoops. It's like Uncle Wiggly. You know, uh, you got to look out for the Bandersnatch. You know, but the uh, that's the only way you're going to get your vote counted. Uh, do not leave without at least filling out a real ballot or a provisional ballot. Try to vote early so you'll know if you're in trouble. 
Right. And um, now there's this woman, yeah. uh, Greg, that's been calling into my show and Stephanie Miller's show saying, well, I just, you know, I, I'm an election judge in Texas. And I just want to let you know that you should ask for a provisional ballot. In fact, you can do this in every state in the country. And uh, if you ask for a provisional ballot and on the outside of the envelope, you fill out your current address, they will re-register you and you'll never have to worry about being purged. And that, of course, is a complete lie at every level. Um, I'm quite certain that this person who keeps calling into these progressive shows and saying this is probably a Republican operative. Well, they're uh, deeply misinformed. And maybe Republican operative and deeply misinformed go together. But, yeah, but, this is but not whatever. True. You're I mean, not automatically re-registered if you fill out a provisional ballot, right. unless, uh, unless it says so on the ballot. That's not true. And in fact, yesterday I got from a PR flunky in the state of Illinois where uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson and I have, are bringing this legal action and got the, the 550,000 names of voters purged, they said, uh, the PR flunky said, voters who have, uh, they're not purged, they're just inactive. If they show up, they can vote. Well, guess what? Not according to the lawyers of your own agency, sir. This is PR wow. flack. The, the truth is that the agency said these, are, these voters are canceled. Okay, canceled. But and if you fill out a provisional ballot, it may or may not get counted. Is this um, the, the, the Republican governor of Illinois has been running this this uh, voter pur purge scam yeah, yeah, too? Absolutely, you have a you have a GOP governor and you have an election board which is split 50-50 Democratic Republican, but the Republicans have effective control of that board by vetoing any voter protection moves by the Democrats. The Democratic legislature has voted to order. Um, the state out of the Chris Kobach cross-check program, which we've discussed, poisonous, disastrous, wrong, racist. Um, but it's been uh, burning down the voter rolls nationwide. And tomorrow, I'm in federal court going after Brian Kemp of Georgia. Wow. There you go. Greg Palast. Check out his website, Greg Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T dot com. And, uh, of course, you can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast, the best democracy money can buy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greg, thanks a lot for being with us today. Okay, fantastic. Great talking with you. BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online, and because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thank you so much for taking my call. Tom, with this aggressive uh, uh, voter oppression against minorities, you know, I have to say this. He's going to have to take our sisters and brothers who are non-minorities to bring us back to normalcy, to take our democracy back. Because minorities are being targeted. I mean, they try in every trick in the book. In Dakotas, you know, if you don't have the same address, uh, if you don't have an address on, 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 if you have a P.O. box, you cannot vote. You know, right. in Georgia, if your name doesn't match exactly, the, you know, in Florida, something else. In, in Ohio, it's going to have to be non-minorities who's going to step up and vote someone who care about democracy, you know, yeah. because minorities are under attack. You well, know, this is, the, you're absolutely right, Omar. You know, with roughly 10% of the American electorate being thrown off the voting rolls in the last year, according to Greg Palast, which is just breathtaking. And of course, the, the, the technique that they're using to do this is they're saying, you know, people are trying to vote twice and three times because, gee, there's three Jose Garcias on the voting rolls in Florida. Yeah. So uh, we have to knock all but one of them right off the In fact, maybe we'll knock all three of them off the voting rolls because there's obviously a felony going on here when, in fact, it's a common name. And they know that in the Hispanic population and the African-American population in particular and in the Asian population, there are, you know, 15, 20 names that are so common that you're, bang, you're going to hit a good chunk of that population, which is how they're doing this, how they can introduce a racial piece to this without knowing people's races. 
and it's just nuts. So, uh, but yeah, to your point, Omar, what I'm seeing, and in the news anyway, and I don't know if this is going to translate into the polls, and we won't know until after the election, but what I'm seeing is that a lot of white people, uh, particularly white suburban women, watched the Kavanaugh hearings and said, oh my God, and they're just furious with the Republicans and Fox News and, and all of the enablers of uh, Mr. Crotch Grabber here, Corporal Bone Spurs in the White House, and they're gonna show up and vote Democratic. And, and, and uh, you know, it's sad to say that we've gotta rely on white voters to save the vote for everybody else. You know, when historically white voters haven't always voted that way, right? 53% of white women sure. voted for Donald Trump. But I don't think 53% of white women are going to turn out and vote for Republicans in this in this cycle. And if they do, I will be astonished. Wow. wow. And, and, and I mean, that's a great point. And the other thing, in terms of international community, because I know the United States always, uh, you know, inject in other countries. I mean, election in terms of uh, observation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is there anything we can do to take this internationally? I mean, this voter oppression that the Republicans are doing? No, back in the uh, 2004 election, the John Kerry versus George W. Bush election, the United Nations offered to, to bring in voting observers, and Jimmy Carter, I believe it was Jimmy Carter's organization, the Carter Center, which oversees elections in countries all over the world, has for decades, yes. it still does. They both offered to go into Ohio and watch the polls, and of course, John Kerry lost the election in Ohio by as I recall, around 130,000 votes when roughly 160 to 180,000 provisional ballots had not even been counted. And Ohio refused to let any election monitoring go on. So, you know, that's the situation, Omar. And, and, and it wasn't just Ohio. I mean, it's happened in state after state. So we're going to have to save ourselves. The U.N. isn't going to do it. The Carter Center is not going to be able to pull it off. It's, you know, every American who still has a vote has to get out and vote. Omar, thank you so much for the call. Tom Harmon here with you. You know, sometimes you know what you know, and sometimes you know what you don't know, and sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes, as the Fire Sign Theater says, you know that you're wrong, but you fear you're right. You suspect you're out of sync and think that you're out of your mind. Everything you know is wrong. And on the line with us is Dakota Brashali. The uh, co-owner of Catland Bookstore in Brooklyn, New York, a participant and organizer of the Hex Brett Kavanaugh event. The website is Catland Books, uh, spelled just like it sounds, uh, C-A-T, Land Books. That's also the Twitter handle. Dakota, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, this is, this is a hoot. Tell me what you're up to. We are a witch shop. We have two adjoined spaces. We have a retail space where it's sort of a supply house for a whole myriad of spiritual traditions and religions and practices. And then we have a sort of black box DIY space, which is used for a whole, again, myriad of different events and meetings and gatherings. So we function as sort of a community hub and meeting the needs of our community. We felt like it was really important for us to have this event. I'm the person who created it and the one who's going to lead it, as well as I was the one who created and led the hexes on Trump last summer. Mm-hmm. And this sort of just followed in the vein of that. It, it made a lot of sense after we'd already done that. I had one of my longtime clients reach out and be like, you know, uh, we're hexing Kavanaugh, right? And I'm, and I'm <laughs> like, uh, you know what? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So There you go. Dakota, what does it look like or sound like to hex Brett Kavanaugh? And what impact do you hope it to have? Are you doing this as theater or are you doing this as uh, essentially religion? Well, I don't see why it can't be both. Um, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, there you, all, go. you know, sort of facets. I, I think that there's something to be said for political theater uh, because it can be both an incredible commentary on society and on the current state of politics and also really embolden and, and give heart to people who are suffering. I think it's a mixture of both. You know, this sort of falls in line with a really uh, broad history of witchcraft throughout time and throughout peoples and throughout ages of humankind in which witchcraft has always been practiced. 
practiced by the people on the outskirts, the people on the fringes, the people the most at risk and disenfranchised. Uh, but then also it falls in line with a more immediate history, which is that of uh, the organization, which I don't know if you have ever read about them, but they were a uh, feminist organization in the 60s and which stood for the Women's International uh, Terrorist Conspiracy to Hex or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they changed it several times depending on the event that they would do. And one of their first political event ever was in the late 60s, and they marched in full regalia on Wall Street mm. to hex the stockbrokers. Mm. Uh, and the Dow opened dismally the next day, and that was said to be this great triumph. There is a real religious practice involved, but there's also the recognition that, like, you don't have to believe that. And if you just want to share space and join in an act of solidarity and you want to know that you are heard and you are understood and you are believed above all and that this isn't a win for the other side, you know, we all knew that he was going to get confirmed, but it is a statement that says we are not going to take this. We are absolutely not going to settle for this, that we are coming for blood and we're not going to settle until we get it, you know? Not literally uh, blood. Dakota, or, Dakota, excuse sorry. me. You say these things on the radio and it can, it can you know, boomerang. You're not literally coming for blood. No, no. I don't, I don't think that I need to see my enemies actually die or suffer in physical pain. Um, I think actually the most satisfying uh, pain that I could ever wreak on someone like Brett Kavanaugh or Donald Trump, you know, these are men that the, the scariest thing in the world to them would be to be seen as impotent. And that's what we're hexing them with. You know, huh. you are not only pathetic, but you're also impotent and you have no power and we're going to overthrow you. And that's a very important statement to be made. Mm. So you want to strip them of political power, sexual capability or both? Um, by impotence. Well, the political power is the power I care about. I don't know, yeah. you know, from what Stormy Daniels says, I don't know that there's a lot of sexual power to be stripped from Donald Trump. So I wouldn't really worry too much about that. Yes, Mr. Little Mushroom. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, geez, what a picture. Uh, so we're talking with uh, Dakota Broshali, who is the co-owner of the Catland Bookstore in Brooklyn and a participant and the organizer of this hex event on Brett Kavanaugh. Catlandbooks.com is the website and the Twitter handle. Is this just something that is local to you in Brooklyn, or are there witches groups all over the country who are doing similar things or maybe even coordinating with you? How fractured or cohesive is the community of witches in the United States? Well, we've had a lot of people reach out um, intending to support and intending to have their own version of a ritual alongside ours. We've had even more people reach out and ask, you know, what can I do on my end? I'm not local. Um, When it comes to witches, you know, witchcraft is a practice. It's not a religion. It's not a belief system. It's what you do. It's not what you think or what you believe. Hmm. So, you know, practicing witchcraft doesn't make you Wiccan or, you know, a part of Haitian voodoo or a part of Chinese traditional religion any more than it makes you, you know, Roman Catholic or Jewish. The reality of the situation is uh, there's as many ways to be a witch as there are witches and as, as many people as there are on the planet. So what seems to be a hallmark of being a witch is somebody who looks at uh, mainstream sort of available, easily accessible religion and says, uh, well, I recognize that I'm a spiritual or religious person, but none of these seem to fit me. So I need to just do a lot of exploration with a lot of skepticism and doubt and find some way to understand what a spiritual life will be for me. Um, And then they sort of encounter the archetype of the witch and the history of witchcraft, and that seems to gel with them. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. So if uh, people are in New York, in Brooklyn, they uh, should come by when? The event sold out before we actually got any press, which was, you know, a little puzzling. But that was when it was just this Saturday. We're actually having a follow-up one that we're having in uh, two weeks from Saturday, November 3rd. Uh, Great. Catlandbooks.com is the website and the Twitter handle. Dakota, thanks. All right. Thanks for having me. Good luck. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is uh, Professor Juan Cole. He is the uh, Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan, the author of uh, his newest book, Mohammed, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. On our uh, TV stream on Free Speech TV, I was just reading an excerpt from that book. Uh, it's brilliant. 
Professor Cole, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Tom. It's always great talking with you. I always learn something. Juan Cole, J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E.com is the website. And of course, you also work for, write for the nation. Let me start with your book. I want to talk to you about Mohammed bin Salman and you know what's going on and Khashoggi and all this kind of stuff. I got several questions, but just putting Mohammed in the context of the times of these regional battles that were going on that I was largely unaware of was for me just an amazing revelation. Please uh, describe, uh, you know, what you learned in your research and you're conveying in this book. The Roman Empire uh, had switched its capital to Constantinople and was being ruled from the east and largely in Greek by the uh, late 500s, early 600s, and had as its direct neighbor the Sasanian Empire of Iran, uh, which ruled both Iran and what is now Iraq. In uh, 603, uh, the, the Iranians invaded, and by 614 they had taken Jerusalem. So if the geopolitics sounds eerily familiar, uh, the fears about the Iranian encroachment on Jerusalem are still there with us. It just shows how things don't change that much in the Middle East. Well, and this, but, um, was, this was the politically unstable and, and militarily unstable environment out of which Mohammed emerged. That's right. The, these two empires fought this vicious, brutal war, which I call a world war because uh, it was fought in Egypt and the Balkans and Central Asia. Uh, and uh, they exhausted themselves over 25 years. Uh, they, they destroyed cities, they moved around populations, uh, and Muhammad was preaching while this was going on all around him, uh, and I argue that if you read the Quran in this context, uh, it's a consistent call uh, for an end to hostilities and uh, for, for peace. Yeah, he literally was the prophet of peace. And now the, uh, the Saudis claim to be the main heirs to the, or holders of the holy kingdom of Medina and Mecca, the, the two holy cities and the place where you've got to go to do the Hajj and basically, uh, you know, put forward their version of Wahhabist uh, Sunni uh, Islam is, is the only one that is of any credibility and they've gone to war against or want to go to war against, well, actually in Yemen have gone to war against uh, Shia. A, did I just describe that accurately? And B, how does that influence or, or what does that mean for the inability of Saudi Arabia to genuinely modernize? Yeah. And, and how does that play into, I mean, Khashoggi was basically calling for modernization. His last piece was published in the Washington Post today, uh, calling for a free press in the Arab world. Yeah. Well, the situation in Saudi Arabia does have historical roots. It goes back uh, to the 18th century when uh, the uh, Al Saud, the ruling dynasty now, uh, was a smaller power then, and they made a alliance with a hardline fundamentalist preacher, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and he and his followers have ever since been supporters of the monarchy. So you don't have a strong separation or any, really any separation of religion and state in Saudi Arabia. The monarchy is very closely tied to these Wahhabi clerics who, you know, preach this puritanical form of Islam, which is very peculiar. I mean, it's unlike the way Islam is practiced in Indonesia or Egypt or, you know, there are 1.5 billion Muslims, there are 22 million Saudis. So it's off in its own corner. But inside Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabi branch is extremely powerful. And uh, there's always been a, a kind of uh, back and forth between the power of the kings and the power of the Wahhabi clergy. And what's happened is that this uh, new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is moving more towards uh, a kind of medieval European idea of absolute monarchy, as not constrained even by the church. Uh, He's pulling a Henry so, VIII? Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, he, he's uh, cracking down on the power of the Wahhabi uh, establishment. They would bother people, you know, if a boy and a girl went to a cafe together in public, that's not allowed because they right. have they would, they would come around and, and they'd just run up and start whipping them or screaming at them or yeah. dragging them off. Yeah. And he's put and, an uh, end to that or he's slowed well, that down? He, he told those people to go home. So, so that seems uh, like a they, good thing. How do, how do we end up with a guy who's killing an American resident journalist? Well, see, 
it's it's sort of like to make a historical analogy. Uh, we've gone th- towards Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan. You know, mm. Hobbes argued for absolute monarchy mm. and for its power even over the religious sphere. Uh, and uh, then John Milton uh, wrote uh, the Areopagitica about how the state shouldn't be interfering with people's freedom of conscience or censoring people. And and he, from a, a Puritan point of view, he was right. writing. So I think what's going on here is if you put all your eggs, all your power, all your prerogatives in the hands of an absolute monarch where there's no check and balance, uh, then that might be a form of, you know, forced uh, top-down modernization, but it's not going to produce stability and it's certainly not going to produce any, any liberties. Yeah. So it seems that essentially structurally, it's going to be a long, long time, if ever, before the Saudis start practicing a form of Islam that, that is uh, more tolerant or, for that matter, even have a, a political structure in place that resembles anything other than an absolute medieval monarchy. Yeah, it, it, you know, the, the Saudis had been um, a kind of an oligarchy. There were uh, seven branches of the ruling family that alternate Nated in producing a king, and they kind of consulted with each other. And uh, what Mohammed bin Salman did was to get rid of that oligarchy, to make a coup against it, and then to substitute uh, his and his father's power uh, solely for it. Right. Uh, and uh, while you know some of the things they want to do need to be done, they, he recognizes that oil you know, is over with soon because Mm. everybody will go to electric cars and renewables and it's bad for the earth. And so he has this vision 2030 to transform the Saudi economy. Right, which got Thomas Um, Friedman just bubbling about how wonderful he was and and Jared Kushner hanging out with him. So if our law, and I believe that I'm right on this, that the United States law, and I'm not even sure if this was uh, uh, part of the Magnitsky Act or if this long precedes it, um, because often these two things are conflated in the in the public dialogue or at the news dialogue. Um, but if our law requires the United States government, if it comes into knowledge that an American person, which includes people who have green cards like Khashoggi, a permanent resident, legal permanent resident in the United States, that an American person is at under threat from a foreign government, we have what's called a duty to warn, the government's obligation to alert that person. And so if our government had information that MBS was going after Khashoggi and failed to warn him, is the Trump administration liable? I mean, is there liability here? Was that duty to warn there? Is it probable that the administration knew what was happening in advance? Well, we learned uh, even in the Obama era that they were listening in on Angela Merkel's personal cell phone. So. It would be very surprising if they were able to plan and pull this uh, murder off in the Istanbul consulate of Saudi Arabia without our national security agency having overheard them planning it. Right. Um, and there's, you know, some leaks to the press suggesting that this is true. I don't have firm evidence for it. Mm. Uh, I think there is an obligation to warn and um, in the law, but, I mean, obviously there's a moral obligation. This was a columnist for the Washington Post. He wasn't an unknown quantity. Right. Uh, b- but um, we don't know. Did the NSA pass this to Trump and that he'd sit on it or exactly what happened? And, uh, frankly, our government in Washington is, is at the moment so erratic and, and chaotic uh, that and people resigning all the time. And and then the president himself seems to have a very short attention span on to be all over the place. Uh, so what, what, was this duty to warn not fulfilled because of uh, a snafu, or was it uh, was, the, was the U.S. government all right with uh, the plans? We just don't know. Yeah. What is your assessment of where this is going to go? Where the future, the, what's the future of U.S.-Saudi relations? Well, the Trump administration will try to bury this thing and go back to business as usual after a decent interval. If the Democrats take Congress, either House or both, then uh, you could see congressional politics around it. You know, back in the early 80s, uh, the Democrats forbade the Reagan administration to spend money on supporting the Contras in uh, in Nicaragua. But he just ignored them. 
<laughs> well, he he, he, he famously he broke Saudi the law Arabia and got a, 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 a and he and sold arms to Iran to create a black slush fund so he could continue, but he couldn't use right. U.S. government funds, and uh, so Congress would be capable of placing sanctions on Saudi Arabia, including the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, mm. uh, which could be invoked, you know, at will by Congress, uh, were they to feel that Mohammed bin Salman uh, had uh, been involved in this murder. So I think on the, on the congressional side, the, the relationship with, with, with Saudi Arabia could turn rocky. Uh, the, the signals are that Trump is not going to uh, let this stand in his way. Yeah. So a lot's probably going to depend on whether or not the Democrats take the House and start investigating this stuff, right? That's right. Yeah. Professor Juan Cole, his website, juancole.com, and uh, you can tweet him at J.R.I. Cole. Uh, Professor Cole, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks for having me, Tom. And his new book, Mohammed, Prophet of Peace, this Amid the Clash of Empires. The Tom Hartman Program. Riduzone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Riduzone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Riduzone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted, and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. Riduzone comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. And good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Riduzone. She looks amazing. And I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Riduzone. Go to tryriduzone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryriduzone.com, promo code TOM. Today we're reading from Juan Cole's book, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. This is from the preface. The new world religion of Islam arose against the backdrop of a 7th century game of thrones between the Russian Empire and the Sasanian Empire of Iran that was fought with unparalleled savagery for nearly three decades. The imperial armies zigzagged bloodily across the Near East, the Fertile Crescent, Asia Minor, and the Balkans. Although the Quran makes it clear that this struggle between rival emperors, whom contemporaries called the two eyes of the earth, formed an essential context for the mission of the Prophet Muhammad, historians have only recently attempted explorations of the latter's life and thought with this framework in mind. This book puts forward a reinterpretation of early Islam as a movement strongly inflected with values of peacemaking that was reacting against the slaughter of the decades-long war and attendant religious strife. From the Crusades to colonialism, conflicts between Christians and Muslims led to a concentration among writers of European heritage on war and Islam, leaving the dimensions of peace and cooperation neglected. Both peace and war are present in the Quran, just as they are in the Bible, and both will be analyzed below, but the focus here is on peace. This book studies the Quran in its historical context rather than trying to explain what Muslims believe about their scripture. The Quran insists on liberty of conscience and forbearance toward enemies, and it pro prohibits unprovoked aggressive warfare. It promises salvation to all righteous monotheists, and not just to followers of the Prophet Muhammad. That many outsiders and a not inconsiderable number of adherents have associated it with none of these values and indeed have often interpreted it as upholding the converse, demonstrates how badly it has been understood. The misapprehensions came about for many reasons, including the imperial ideologies of the later Christian Byzantine and Muslim Abbasid empires, difficulties in interpreting the text, and a failure to read it against contemporary Roman and Iranian texts, a procedure that allows us to compare and contrast its values and concerns with those of others living in that era. The Iranian invasion of Roman territory from 603 forward threatened the independence of Western Arabia, where Muhammad was based. The Sasanian conquest of Jerusalem in 614 struck contemporaries as apocalyptic and provoked a mystical response from the Prophet. A close reading of the Quran shows that a profound distress at the carnage of that age led Muhammad to spend the first half of his prophetic career, 610 to 622, imagining an alternative sort of society one firmly grounded in practices of peace. 
The Quran repeatedly instructs believers to repel evil with good, pardon their persecutors, and wish peace on those who harassed them. These verses have, as their greater context, the outbreak of struggles among Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and a remnant of pagans who were partisans in the clash of empires raging around them. Muhammad in these years resembles much more the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount than is usually admitted. Scholars have increasingly tied the second half of Muhammad's career, 622 to 632, to the maneuverings of Rome and Iran, even suggesting that his move to Medina from his hometown of Mecca may have been connected to Roman diplomacy. I argue that Muslims in the time of the Prophet were explicitly allied with the Christian Emperor Heraclius, 610 to 641, and indeed that Muhammad saw his defensive battles against truculent pagans in places such as Badr and Uhud in West Arabia as protecting Roman churches in Transjordan and Syria to the north. It is likely these militant Ar Arabian pagans had allied with the Iranian King of Kings. In short, Islam is, no less than Christianity, a Western religion that initially grew up in the Roman Empire. The prophet in those years of pagan attacks did not abandon his option for peace, but moved toward a doctrine of just war, similar to that of Cicero and late antique Christian thinkers. He repeatedly sued for peace with a bellicose Mecca, but when that failed, he organized Medina for self-defense in the face of a determined pagan foe. The Quran insists that aggressive warfare is wrong, and that if the enemy seeks an armistice, Muslims are bound to accept the entreaty. This disallowing of aggressive war and search for resolution, even in the midst of violent conflict, justifies the title prophet of peace, even if Muhammad was occasionally forced into a defensive campaign. The Quran contains a doctrine of just war, but not of holy war, and does not use the word jihad in that latter connotation. It views war as an unfortunate necessity when innocence and even the freedom of conscience are threatened. It's, it strictly forbids vigilantism and equates premeditated killing of non-combatants with genocide, paraphrasing in this regard Jewish commentaries in, on the Bible in the Jerusalem Talmud. The Quran, read judiciously alongside later histories, suggests that during Muhammad's lifetime, Islam spread peacefully in the major cities of Western Arabia. The soft power of the Quran's spiritual message has typically been underestimated in most treatments of this period. The image of Muhammad and very early Islam that emerges from a careful reading on peace themes contradicts Western views. Muhammad by Juan Let's check in with Bob Nay over at Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. Uh, Bob Nay is also the author of Sideswiped. If you want to know how Washington, D.C. really worked back when Bob was in Congress and in all probability still really works. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. So, uh, Congressman, what's going on? Well, Tom, Khashoggi, of course, Jamal Khashoggi is in the news in a wide variety of ways today. I don't know if you've had a chance, <clears throat> excuse me, to see the column yet that, that they printed. I read Washington. it this morning, yeah. He, right. He's basically calling for a free press in the Arab world. And, and right. that apparently was enough to get him murdered and, and cut up with a bone saw while he was still alive. Well, exactly. And, uh, and it was sent, I think, actually the very day he disappeared. So the, the Post, you know, ran it. And uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that he was exiled from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, not over uh, a fact of calling for a revolution of the kingdom, but the fact that he had badmouthed then uh, President-elect Donald Trump is the reason. Really? Oh, yes. Yeah, you can. That's verifiable that uh, the, when he got in trouble again, he was not in the inner circle. But he had a relationship with MBS, as they the, call him, the Saudi royal the family. Prince. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't call, he called for changes in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. As you know, I, I lived there in 1983, mm. so I'm very familiar with the Saudi ways. But he didn't call for a revolution over the king. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't on the outs for that reason, but he did get in trouble when he badmouthed Donald Trump, who was president-elect at the time, and it led to the exile. Yeah, and, and that's a verifiable fact. That's incredible. With it, right. So the Saudis are protecting Trump. Now Trump is protecting the Saudis, and Trump has apparently benefited to the tune of millions of dollars to the Saudis over the years, um, uh, tens of millions of dollars. 
And, uh, you know, now we've got this report from The New York Times that he is a fraud and a tax thief, a cheat, uh, that he that he's committed multiple felonies, that his entire family has participated in. The guy's a con artist. I mean, you know, the Trump crime family is extensive, that his daughter was lying to investors about the, the number of apartments that they had sold and buildings. And so the investors invested in the buildings and then the, the Trumps walked away with 30 to 50 million dollars and the investors got screwed. Um, apparently, his daughter is a grifter as well. Obviously, Jared Kushner. We Jared Kushner's dad went to prison for being a grifter. I mean, we've got the entire grifter family here, and they're tied in with the Saudis. Well, yeah, you said it better than I could. A whole list of things, and now there are eleven senators. Now, no, none of them are Republican, but I do want to note that two Republicans, Senator Rubio and Senator Graham, have come out rather aggressively about uh, doing something about Saudi Arabia. But 11 senators have asked in a letter to the president, uh, they want to know information about the business relationship of the Trump Corporation with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Mm. And one of the reasons, uh, of course, the president cited that we need to, uh, you know, basically be calm about this because we need to have the Saudis help us with the Iranians. How on earth the Saudis could help us with the Iranians is beyond me. Well, the Saudis Saudi want to go to war with Iran, and so do we. Well, they so. want us. They they want us to do it too, of course. Yeah, to the to the last American don't. soldier, right? Right. They don't have a military. Now this has changed dramatically. Ironically, the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, and it was so unfortunate and so horrific how they killed him. You know, it was not uh, an accidental situation going wrong from an interrogation. They were cutting off finger after finger until they, they cut off all his fingers. It took seven minutes for him to die. That was not an interrogation gone wrong. That was torture and premeditated murder. Right. And also, the, the person who flew from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was the personal head of security for the crown prince. So this was well planned to the level of the crown prince. No so, Bob, Bob, what do you think about this guy who died in the uh, car crash here, this, this suspicious car crash? He's a 31-year-old Air Force lieutenant in the Saudi Air Force. He apparently was either associated with or was part of this 15-man hit team. Do you think that maybe he was just killed off and now they're going to blame it on him? Well, you know, that's possible. Look, they are not going to come out and say, we planned this, etc. Now, they will eventually dump the crown prince if, in fact, there's enough pressure put on them. That's how they'll take care of this, to, to basically depose him and then put somebody else in his place, because it is a business kingdom. They don't care about women's rights. They don't care about... But he's going to fight. I mean, you know, he, he locked up all his peers in the, in the hotel there and, and tortured one of them to death and, and shook him down for apparently hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, he's got to be... He's got to have consolidated both his wealth and his power in ways that make it much more difficult to do that than it might have been before he did this. Well, that's true. Now, all the businesses that you read that have pulled out of this, by the way, now our Secretary of Treasury, after all, everybody else pulled out and after a lot of heat, has now said he won't go over there, but he waited. That's the whole point of this, Tom. Yeah, profiles and courage. They're waiting and yeah. waiting and waiting on this. And the, the fact of the business connection makes this a whole different world than if he didn't have that business connection as president. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Bob Nay, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Tom. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen, and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us here on the Tom Hartman program. His website, pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, kind of the number one progressive in Congress here. Also represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin brilliantly. And Congressman, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks. 
Thanks, Tom. Very glad to be here. Thanks for being with us. What's at the top of your agenda? What are you hearing out in the district? I'm guessing health care is a big deal. Yeah, you know, I've been traveling uh, the upper Midwest, uh, helping out a lot of congressional candidates. And, you know, what we hear over and, and over uh, again via both commercials and uh, in articles is health care. You know, Republicans realize their tax bill is not working for them. Uh, of course, I think they knew that it was just for their donors anyway. But health care is really working against them. And the fact that people could lose access to coverage because of pre existing conditions, every Republican from Scott Walker in Wisconsin running for governor to every congressional candidate across the country is all trying to lie about their record. You know, I think uh, this is a good thing for us because health care is an issue that we know from the writer's poll about a month ago now, 70% of the people support Medicare for all, including 52% of Republicans. So they're just in the wrong direction on health care, and that's the right direction for November 6th. There you go. Well, let's uh, pick up some phone calls here. Hey, Rob in Durham, North Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Mark Pokian. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question regarding arms sales. And it's coming up with uh, Saudi Arabia. But the money that is made from the arms sales, do they go to the manufacturers of the arms or do they go to the American Treasury? No, this is money that the manufacturers make. And I think what Donald Trump has hyperinflated, one is the amount of money that Saudi Arabia is going to spend on arms because he's including past future, present money all included. Uh, And then he's hyperinflating the number of jobs connected to it. So this is money that would go to companies in the United States that do employ people. But then again, you know, here we have perhaps the crown prince lying uh, to the entire world, including the United States, about what may have happened in Turkey. The president just defends him without any regard for what the truth actually is. Joy in Crescent City, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Thank you so much for taking my call. My question is regarding how do we get out of this mess. Robert Reich has proposed the idea of annulling this election if it can be definitively proved that Trump conspired with Russia to steal the election. And I'm just wondering if that's a possibility or if there are other things being considered. I think that we are in uncharted territory here, and I think we need to come up with creative solutions to fix this problem, and the problems are very deep. And and if I may add to Joy's question, Congressman, what if Robert Mueller reports back after the election that, in fact, one of the reasons Donald Trump, in fact, the reason Donald Trump is in the White House right now is because of a foreign country, specifically Russia, decided to intervene in our election? Thank you, Joy. So, Joy and Tom, I mean, great question, and I don't know if I have the singular answer because, as you said, Joy, this is uncharted territory. What I do know is we're still waiting for the Mueller report. We don't know if the Mueller report will be as strong as to say something so explicitly. It may say lots of other things that they're looking at and they've come up with, and, you know, we still have all options on the table on how to deal with things. I think annulment is one of the more difficult So I think, you know, what we're going to have to do is, one, remember elections have consequences in less than three weeks. It's a very, very important election where we can flip the House of Representatives, maybe flip the Senate, maybe flip 10 governorships and a whole bunch of state legislatures, uh, as well as attorney generals and others across the country. So we've got to be active around that. If we take the majority in the House, we will be able to do hearings on his taxes, on the emoluments clause, on all sorts of things, and finally get some answers where Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have been quite happy burying their head in the sand and not knowing what Donald Trump was actually up to. So there are lots of things we're going to be able to do should the election go well on November 6th. But right now, I think the focus has to be on let's make sure we all do everything we can to get out the vote for that election. And then we've got 2020 coming up at bare minimum to make sure that we can take back the White House. But uh, we all have to be really present and active, and we'll definitely do our jobs in Congress, but we need everyone being present and active for November 6th. John in Polsbo, Washington, if I'm saying that right, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello. I just have sort of a generic question on when the Dems are going to start fighting fire with fire. They seem to want to play this touchy-feely game, and every time they do... The Republicans thumb their nose as they're doing an end run around the Democratic strategy. Time to wake up, I guess, is what I'm wanting to say. I'll get back to you. Thank you. 
Yeah, John, so, you know, I think this has been a popular refrain that, quite honestly, has been overplayed, because in the past, I would say I've seen this all too often, where I wish Democrats would be far more aggressive. But right now, we are watching us on generic ballot up double digits. We're doing something right, or maybe it's that they're doing something so wrong the public wants to change. But, you know, I've actually, for the first time since I've been in Congress, been happy with the message that we're going out talking about. We're talking about health care and the cost of prescription drugs. We're talking about good-paying jobs and the need for infrastructure. And we're talking about the culture of corruption in Washington. It's understandable. People can relate to it. And we have a message. And I don't think we're being too soft in how we do it. Now, I'll admit, Speaker Ryan, for example, his super PAC is probably the sleaziest pack I have ever seen out there in how they run ads. But they're not also being effective in many of these districts. So, you know, they're going to do that. If they're fine with rolling around in the mud, they can. But they're not being effective. And we're up double digits, again, on generic ballots, and we're up in many of these races. So I think talking about health care, talking about those tax cuts they did, talking about the, the corruption in Washington and that no one in Congress is standing up to the president really is resonating. So, you know, I don't know if we need to say it pounding fist on the table or saying it in a soft confident voice, but either way, we're saying it. And I think that's quite an improvement from maybe some past cycles. So while I certainly agree your complaint, John, in the past has often been something I've also been concerned about. Right now, I actually feel that we're doing some very right things going into November 6th. Al in Missoula, Montana, you're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Yeah, I thought there's something that you'd like to hear, at least be aware of. I'm a retired Vietnam vet, and Previously, we didn't have to pay for, under TRICARE, we didn't have to pay for our pharmaceuticals. And since Trump has come into office, they've stolen that away from us now to where we even have to pay a co-payment now for our prescriptions and stuff. And it's uh, just another way that the Republicans keep stealing. And we paid some pretty hard dues for those benefits, and uh, that's something that should be brought out to the public. They're doing things that the media and nobody else is even aware of. They're stealing our benefits left and right. It was a Senate bill, and I can't remember the number that was on it. It took me three days on the phone to try and track it all down because I started getting this bill all of a sudden. So they are constantly, which you guys are both aware of, they're constantly stealing benefits that we paid highly for. Al, let me address it in two ways. One, you're right. We put a lot of money into defense, most of it going to private contractors that also happen to help out mightily on campaigns, and not enough into the people who actually have fought for the country and defended uh, this country. And, you know, here's a good example you're giving of, of what's happening. But, you know, second, it, it really opens it up to a bigger, broader issue. The Republicans in Congress are simply unwilling and afraid to stand up to the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, this is one of the major things we're talking about as Democrats across the country. You know, I think one of the most interesting statistics was between 2010 and 2016, the last time we did this statistic, there were something like 205 or 210 drugs approved by the FDA. Every single one of them had help assistance provided by NIH money, National Institute of Health, which is our tax dollars. So every time we hear from these pharmaceutical companies that the drugs are so expensive and going faster than the cost of other medical expenses is because of research and development, it's a complete lie. And, uh, you know, the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress do very little to stand up to these companies. We will if we get the majority. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Pocan's website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can find it online. Greg in Richmond, Kentucky. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank yeah. you, Tom. Thank you, Congressman. I'm calling today. I make every attempt to speak to my uh, friends who are Republican and have open, honest, and meaningful conversations with them about issues that affect them. And what I'm learning is they themselves are not that well-informed about the issues and what's going on in Congress. I focused on the three biggies, as I call them, health care, Social Security, and Medicare. And I'm surprised at how little they know, but, of course, the majority of them are listening to Fox News, and I'm not saying that other corporate media outlets are much better. But what I'm calling today is to suggest that the DCCC consider making some changes and maybe a new course for strategy. Number one, maybe they could start year-round education efforts, maybe have TV commercials year-round, even in non-federal election years, voter registration drives year-round, 
focusing on new voters, and using technology to keep the existing Democrats and independents that follow them in the loop on what's going on today or what's coming up next month, and potentially having a sort of DCCC national website. So if they did have commercials talking about these issues, what's going to affect the voters, they would have a source that they could go to and get more information. Thank you. Yeah, Greg. So two things. First of all, I think you make a really strong point. I think what I would argue is really that probably is the work of the DNC, since they have the connection to the the Democratic parties throughout the country. The DCCC is kind of the arm of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and they have resources to really spike more at election time. But the DNC, hopefully, is that ongoing presence. And I think under Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, they try to do more of that. But I, I completely agree with you. You can't just have a conversation before the election. You have to have it ongoing. Second, if I can, Tom, because I think this brings up a point that you and I have talked about a lot, too, and it relates to a question, which is Social Security. You know, if you want to talk to these folks, and you're right, they're not getting the news from Fox. They're not getting it from the president. He tells everyone's got fake news. You have to just trust him. But Mitch McConnell, when asked about the debt, raised the issue of, yes, it's being driven by Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So even though they just added $2 trillion to the debt with their tax bill, taking care of corporations and the wealthiest people in this country, 83% of that money is going to go to the top 1% in a decade. Uh, They went back going after what we all benefit from, and we've paid into Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. So I, I think that's a great example. Mitch McConnell bringing it up three weeks before the election as the answer to the debt tells us exactly where they want to go. And if people are concerned about Social Security or Medicare, they better be concerned about the elections and what the Republicans could do. Laura in Santa Rosa, California, here on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, hi there. I'm just sitting here listening and I'm thinking to myself, progressives, we must stop complaining about how the Democratic Party is fighting back. When you're not writing the rules and you have people who, I mean, right now, cheating does win. That's what Donald Trump has introduced to us. And so we really have to get a grip and just start working together and think about, just like Tom says, what can we do to make this better? Anyway, with that being said, I was going to talk about Social Security, but I think I want to share with you, Congressman Pocan, about voter suppression. Is there something in place? Because we know that they're going to cheat. We know that. Do we have anything in place that will educate every voter about provisional ballots in their state, in their district, and exactly what they have to do to make sure their vote is counted and to encourage everyone to follow up on that? If they cheat people out of voting and hand them that placebo balance and then they don't follow up on it because they're not aware, then their vote doesn't get counted. Yeah, let's let Congressman. Yeah, Laura, a great point. And I think, you know, hopefully the media would take that up, although we found that doesn't normally happen, the mainstream media taking up the issue to educate voters about their rights. But I think, you know, what you're going to find, especially is if we know many areas like right now, Georgia, and we're watching in North Dakota and some other areas where you're seeing some actual suppression happening at the moment, we just have to make sure when there's a close race, we have everyone on the ground informing people to make sure that we can get those votes counted. Yeah. Amen. Terry in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Terry, thanks for listening on Simple Radio. I have that app. I didn't realize yeah. my own show was on it. It's on KBCS. Oh, great. Bellevue, Washington. Yeah. yeah, so that's how I listen. Um, I recently moved from Washington to Arizona, um, registered as a Democrat here in Arizona. And uh, yesterday when I, when I got the mail, I had my early ballots for Arizona, but I also had uh, my husband and I both had notices from Washington saying that we were registered in two states. And, you know, of course, you, you know, you can't vote in two states. That's, a, right. that's, a, that's against the law. But I had to send these back saying that I did not want to be registered in Washington anymore. So my thought is that I should hang on to my ballots and not send them in yet until they receive that in Washington and then double check to make sure they haven't kicked me off. I doubt, no, I doubt you'll have a problem there. And this is probably Washington State. You know, Washington State and Oregon, both, you know, with vote by mail, are fairly good government states this is probably just the way that they keep their roles clean and this is the appropriate way to do it rather than buying a purge list from chris kobach you know so i would i would not worry about that so much terry although if you have any questions you can call the registrar's office the secretary of state's office in both washington and arizona and ask them what the deal is and uh, in fact if you learn anything interesting give us a call back okay terry 
will do. Okay, Thank thanks you. a lot. Good talking with you, and good luck, and and good on you for being for voting, for being registered. I mean, being being too registered is you know much better problem than not at all registered. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.